0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: London Architect hit with online abuse for criticising Georgian new builds. Square Mile Skyscraper set for record 1.8 billion sale despite the work-from-home boom. Architectural organisations left with slim pickings from the government's cultural recovery fund. The Barbican Centre announces a new exhibition on Radical 1980s Feminist Architecture Cooperative Matrix and a new national COVID memorial takes shape on the South Bank. My name is Zoe Cave and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My special guest this week is Phineas Harper. Finn is an architecture critic and director of Open City. Welcome back to the show, Finn.
0: Hi, Zoe. Thank you for having me. Great to be here.
1: Our first story of the week started on Twitter with architect and housing design advocate for the Mayor of London, Dinah Bornart, igniting a heated debate over Georgian architecture, which was later picked up by the Daily Telegraph. Dinah's original but now deleted tweet raised concerns over the imperial and colonial connotations of design from the Georgian era, which coincided with the height of the slave trade, in response to an image of a newly built home in that style labelled as a NIMBY KILLER by campaign group Create Streets. In her tweet, Dinah said, The fortress-style display of wealth resonates through time. I wonder if it's starting to resonate just a little too much for a lot of us imperialism starting to look well offensive just a thought. It led to a fierce takedown by online classicists and even some far-right trolls and bot accounts. The tweets were also reported on by right-wing political website Guido Fawkes which sought to undermine her claims and the profession by suggesting that architects are making new housing look so horrible as a form of self-flagellation to apologise for a colonial past. Quick to point out that her qualms were not merely with the style but with the colonialist history that they are closely tied to, Dinah went on to say that going so far as to define Georgian architecture as beauty is politically troubling. If beauty harks back to oppression, we are on a very dangerous ground. So Finn, what's this all about?
0: Whoa, what a story. I mean, this is fascinating stuff, isn't it? So you've got... Dinah Bornat, who's like, you know, the loveliest architect you could imagine. Uh, her work is, is great. It's, it's super kind of community engaged. She's a, a big advocate for children's rights, for better public spaces, for cycling infrastructure, for playable streets. You've, you've got her being attacked in this kind of vicious pylon uh, that has some of the biggest names in the right-wing media jumping on her over a tweet daring to criticize um, classical architecture. Now, I'm a fan of classical architecture. I'm a fan of lots of traditional forms of architecture. I'm going to say that from the off. But I think constructive criticism is welcome, is useful, is uh, part of a healthy democratic dialogue. And um, frankly, she was making a good point that we as fans of classical and traditional architecture should have listened to and learned from, and instead you had this kind of really ugly pylon.
1: So I mean, a lot of this seems to, to orientate around aesthetics and style, what looks good, what is beautiful. But there seems to be more going on here. Is this just an argument about style and beauty, or what else is there to this? What is the connection with like these political sort of left or right or alt right or very, very left?
0: Uh, people get very worked up about architectural style it's a real kind of flashpoint uh for a lot of uh, people but, which is great because you know we all live in in, in architecture it surrounds us it's it totally makes sense that people care deeply about what their cities look like and I, I think that's in general that's a good thing um the thing about uh classical and traditional styles is is gets a bit complicated though so of course like classical architecture um, is generally architecture that is somehow referencing the aesthetics of the ancient world. So ancient Greece, ancient Rome, uh, ancient Morocco, ancient Egypt. Um, and you see this all around us uh, in kind of grand buildings of a, civ- uh, of a certain era. Um, the problem, though, is that although classical architecture comes from this enormously diverse place, over the, you know, more recent centuries has become much more associated with empire, with European nations colonizing other nations and subjugating them. So what starts off as this kind of very diverse thing becomes very closely associated with uh, a a kind of an imperial project uh, of colonization. In fact, in other countries, what they call uh, the colonial style is what we Brits are calling um, classicism.
1: There's been a growing trend over the past few years tying different architectural styles to various political agendas. For example, classical architecture is increasingly being linked to the far right, who seem to idolise the traditional style of architecture as a symbol of power and authority. Is there evidence for this argument? Should we be discussing the links to xenophobia and colonialism embedded within this style of architecture? Um, Or why can't we just romanticise this bygone era? Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, it is really um, important and interesting to think about the historical associations of the styles in which we built. That's not to say we should write off Uh, a particular style or a particular building technology or a particular architectural feature. But I think if we don't understand the history behind those moves, then we don't really know what we're doing and then, you know, we as, as city designers, we should probably tr- be trying to at least understand the moves w- that we're making and the history that they fit into. Architecture often is going to be around for a very long time. And so it's important to, to get our heads around the kind of um, the, the the messages that it sends and the stories uh, that it tells. Um, so I guess my point is that there's an enormous amount we should be learning from classical and traditional architecture movements, they get an enormous amount right. I, I think in particular, uh, in the in context of a, a climate emergency, thinking about um, traditional building crafts, for example, and some of the skills that we have lost over the industrialization of the 20th century, um, if we were to recover some of those more traditional building crafts, that might offer some of the tools that we can then use to build more with timber and therefore bring down the carbon emissions of new uh, architecture. Uh, And I think that traditional um, understanding traditional architecture could could help us to think about the climate emergency. but what we can't allow ourselves to do is to tolerate um, the far right or you know nationalists or racists co-opting classical and traditional architectural forms, uh, and politicizing them with horrible messages about xenophobia and about um, white nationalism, or uh, t- uh, you, kind of stealing what is nice and what is cool about traditional architecture and using it for these um, abhorrent. Uh, motives. So I, th- I think that we, as fans of traditional architecture, should do a much better job of standing up to racism and saying no. You know, you you have no right to co-opt uh, traditional architecture for your 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 campaigns. This stuff is good, and it's good because it helps us to think about the city and think about a low carbon city. But that is not. We are not going to allow people to to use. Um, classical or traditional uh, architecture uh, to to be politicised, especially not when it, it it could cause harm to already marginalised groups.
1: Mm. But then in the wake of the government's recent race report, this seems like a pretty good time to be reflecting on the enduring legacy of colonialism in, in architecture. So is Dinah right to be linking Georgian buildings with colonialism so explicitly?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Diner was making a, an interesting provocation that is worthy of con- some consideration. Like, it's totally right to uh, recognise that um, neoclassical architecture came hand in hand with uh, colonial impositions of power and subjugation. That's not necessarily to say that there's nothing we can learn from classicism or neoclassicism or traditionalism at all. And, and as I, I would argue that classicism actually dates back to thousands of years ago and it is a, a an architectural form that is far far more diverse and far far more multicultural than um certain pockets of uh white nationalists would pretend to believe. You know, if you think about um Donald Trump, uh so D- Donald Trump introduced a bill while he was pre- president um, called the Making Federal Buildings Beautiful Again Bill. He could, knew how to coin a phrase, that guy. Um, but his idea was that all new federal American buildings would be built in a traditional style, in a classical style. Um, now, he wasn't doing that because he cares about the climate emergence and he wants to bring back like low-carbon masonry and timber work. He was doing it because he understands, Dinah's point, that classical architecture is linked to colonialism and that by insisting on new federal buildings being built in a classical style, he can um, send a a message like a sort of dog whistle to uh, white supremacists in America, that the government is on the side that the American government was on the side of white nationalism and that felt that 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 was the sort of authentic um, uh, inheritors of the American nation. Now, thankfully, Trump has gone and that bill is, is going with it. But I think that is a very clear example of a, a, a far-right politician, a racist politician, using classical architecture, completely co-opting it, snatching it from its proper roots and using it as a tool of violence to send a, a pretty horrible signal about who is welcome in America.
1: Before we dive into our second story, you are listening to The London, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. Open City is a charity that relies on donations from people like you. So if you like the show and want to support our work, please share the link. Leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. Open City friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, audio walking tours of amazing parts of London and friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support. Our second story has been covered in The Guardian, Construction News and City AM and looks at the sale of a London skyscraper set to become the UK's most expensive office block. The 37-storey 100 Bishopsgate, situated in the heart of London's financial district and designed by Eliza Morrison, is on the market for a record £1.8 billion. If sold for this sum, as expected to Far Eastern investors, it will surpass the £1.3 billion paid for the nearby walkie-talkie building designed by Rafael Vinoli in 2017. This comes despite the mass exodus from the city during the pandemic and the rise of remote working. Government economists estimate the City of London missed out on £1.9 billion in spending from commuters in 2020. Major companies such as Capita, HSBC, Lloyds and Sainsbury's have all announced plans to downsize or close some of their London offices as more staff choose more flexible working patterns. So Finn, what is this all about? If demand for office spaces in the cities are falling, why is this sale going ahead now?
0: Yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? Because kind of conventional wisdom would maybe tell you that now is a bad time to spend a lot of money on central uh, city office space. Um, I think there's a number of things going on here. I'd be interested in, in your take of it. Uh, one is that um, property cannot be separated from the wider uh, kind of commodities market, which often involves gambling, right? There is a form of gambling in all of this uh in 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 the sort of international finance and trading of these stocks and um i'm I'm sure that that is is one of the things that's going on here it's that these these um investors are 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 taking a bit of a punt on um property values staying high or, or going higher and they'll have hedged against that investment with other investments, uh, which is what we see, you know, in the stock market in in general. So they they may well um, uh, be making a calculated risk here, um, that they'll have protected themselves with other kinds of financial products or other investments elsewhere. But um, m- maybe the bigger thing I'd I'd like to focus on is, is that. Um, it is clear. The government, the, the British government, has made it clear that they really care about landowners. Right? That is that is defined a lot of the. Um the British government's response to the pandemic with with the furlough scheme, which kind of enables people to continue paying their mortgage, even if their uh, their job is no longer viable, um, with the uh, the support packages which are sort of targeted to make sure that um, businesses continue paying rents to landlords. Um, I think you couldn't imagine a government sending a stronger signal that they are going to look after the needs of or the, the desires of, of property owners than, than what the British government is up to at the moment. And so if I was a foreign investor thinking, well, should I buy some British property? Um, I'd be feeling pretty confident too, because this government has really signaled that whatever happens, they're going to try and make sure that my, my, um, my needs are kind of looked after, that my, my interests come first.
1: And so then in terms of if we, if we, if we would think about the working patterns that we're seeing... So a huge number of people in London and across the world adapted to a working from home scenario when the pandemic first hit last year and a year on from then it appears that for many people and companies this system has worked better than expected. Um, a recent study shows that more than half of workers would prefer to move to a hybrid system sharing their time equally between office and remote working. Um, does this sale really indicate a return to pre-COVID status quo or or do you think that homeworking has proven its effectiveness in terms of worker satisfaction and a more flexible solution to many for the way as the way forward?
0: Well look the problem with this question is is the framing of it because the, the assumption that you've made in that question is that everybody was happy before the pandemic and that everybody really loved crowding onto to, to trains and commuting into the office and, and doing their job in the office. And and in a sense I I I just I don't think that it's as simple as weighing up that um that binary i i feel like we're what 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 we're hearing when people are saying that they want to do more work from home is a bit more complicated because a lot of people don't like working they don't like working at all and they're right to not like working because perhaps their jobs are rubbish perhaps they don't like commuting not because it's crowded necessarily but because Uh, that whole model of how you feed yourself is a bit bankrupt. Uh, Maybe they don't like their boss, maybe they don't like their colleagues, maybe they don't like the economy that they're in, maybe they don't like being complicit in a high-carbon activity, whatever their their job may be. So I guess my frustration with the um, should we work from home or not question is that it's too simplistic really we this is an opportunity to think about what work is and what work does for us as a society and as citizens um and I think the opportunity uh has to be much more um much more ambitious than just thinking, do we want to continue doing our jobs in, in sort of exactly the same way, but like sometimes we're working from home That feels like such an anticlimax after everything we've learned in this horrendous year about. What makes, uh, what makes a good life, what makes a kind of community worth being part of, what makes a neighbourhood worth being part of, what we've lost through the pandemic. If all we learn at the end of it is that commuting is a bit rubbish and we'll, we'd rather do slightly less of it, then um, that would be a really kind of feeble uh, lesson to take home.
1: Our third story focuses on the £400 million Culture Recovery Fund announced by the government last week. Again, it's been reported across the national media. Over 2,700 organisations, including Open City, have been offered a share of the grants and loans to help the arts, culture, and heritage sectors to reopen and recover. Oliver Dowden, the Culture Secretary, announced the latest instalment of the £1.75 billion fund that was unveiled last July in a bid to help mediate the catastrophic damage the pandemic was wrecking on the culture sector. More than 70% of the £400 million has been dis- distributed outside of London, helping to boost organisations across the country. There is a strong focus on the music, theatre and performing arts industries with over £170 million in repayable finance being offered to institutions including the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company. Heritage and historic sites too are big beneficiaries with the English Heritage Trust which cares for 420 historic monuments, buildings and places expected to receive £23.4 million. However... There appears to be slim pickings for the architectural organisations, with few of them making it to the culture recovery table. Open City did get funding, as did the Architecture Centre in Bristol, but their grants combined add up to less than a quarter of a percent of the total funding package, prompting some to ask why architecture is seen as such a small chunk of the cultural sector. So Finn, what's this all about? Why have architecture companies been left out of this government culture recovery fund? Should we read into anything into the fact a lot of architecture charities and organisations don't rely on public funding generally, but actually instead get um, through their private sponsorship?
0: Open City has, has got lucky in this one. So we should, we should say that not all architecture organisations have been left out. We've got some money and, and the Bristol Architecture Centre has got some money, which is fantastic. But, as you rightly say, that is really quite a small piece compared to the overall investment. And I think what this tells me, as someone who cares very passionately about architecture as a cultural uh, production, is um, that we are not very good at sitting in either camp, right? So architecture is sort of not quite an art, but neither is it being seen as, as a science. Uh, you hear a lot about STEM these days, uh, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Don't hear architecture included in in the sort of STEM conversation either. Um, yes, you get a little bit of architecture in heritage and certainly in historic architecture and historic buildings. Um, but contemporary architecture and these kind of questions that we like to deal with on this show about urbanism, about the future of city making sort of seem to sit outside all three camps. Like no one is quite... Welcoming architecture and urbanism and landscape design into their um, the bosom of their funding streams.
1: In your view, where in the architecture industry is this funding really needed now?
0: The work we do at Open City is about trying to bring more people from more bra- backgrounds into big conversations about the future of design, and the future of cities. Um, that's a real challenge because uh, as everybody pr- listening to this probably probably knows traditionally architecture has not been has been a reasonably exclusive profession like it costs a lot of money to study architecture in the first place and that's similar for other city making professions as well Um, so there are some kind of inherent barriers uh, within these professions and what would really help is more investment from uh, cultural funders to help uh, with outreach to make sure that we can open up these professions um, to a much wider group of people, but that's not never going to be possible um, if architecture continues to receive, you know, 0.25 percent of like publicly available funding packages.
1: Our last story looks ahead to an up-and-coming exhibition announced at the Barbican, focusing on the works of revolutionary 1980s feminist design cooperative Matrix matrix was one of the first architectural organizations worldwide to bring a feminist approach to architecture out of theory and academic and into practice and design they wanted to change both a profession and a built environment dominated by men and grounded in stereotypes about where women should go and what they should do or be they are perhaps best known for the jaganari educational resource center a project for women from the largely Bangladeshi community of Whitechapel that grappled with a desire to represent its users architecturally whilst also protecting them from increasingly violent racial harassment in the area. Through the lens of their work, the exhibition aims to explore two important social questions. Who are our buildings and social spaces for and how do they affect us? Opening on the 17th of May, the show will include a physical installation at the Barbican Centre featuring films, drawings, photos and architectural models from the Matrix Archive. Alongside this, there will be a programme of online talks, workshops, films and screenings and walking tours. The exhibition has been curated by John Asprey and is designed by Edit, another all-women design collective founded in 2017. So, Finn. The Matrix Cooperative were formed in 1981 and later disbanded in 1994. Could you shed some light on why they were such a revolutionary force in the architecture world and beyond
0: during that time? The sad thing is that they weren't. Like, they, they did amazing work. And um, I certainly uh, read about the work of Matrix when I was a student. Um, but in a way, they haven't enjoyed their uh, uh, a thriving reputation um, they're not particularly well known. We don't know their projects in a way like history has passed over Matrix. They they were they were strident in their time. They published really good books. Um, they did uh, built work, some of which is featured in in Open City's alternative guide to the London boroughs. Um, but they're not sort of part of the canon, right? They're not They're not kind of a, a, a company that every um, architecture student will know about, certainly every architecture curator would know about. And so that's why it's really exciting that um, the Barbican... taken on this show there's sort of you know almost no exhibitions (laughs) happening at all because of the pandemic but one of the ones that is is this matrix feminist design cooperative um and it's going to open soon at the barbican and um from from what i understand about it they not only has they have uh, this will be the first time that a lot of this archive has ever been seen um so the 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 matrix is in the process of uh, properly archiving all of their work um, and that has been a, a, a fiddly process of finding kind of old models and drawings and sketchbooks and things from people's garages and driving them around the country um, because they haven't been adopted into you know more formal archives yet. Um, and so for for a lot of us this will be a, a kind of really really special moment where we're, we're able to see for the first time um, work by the by this 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 collective who who deserve to be much more, Um, well-known than they actually are.
1: Our last story relates to a new national COVID memorial which is taking shape in the form of a kilometre-long wall of hearts next to the Thames and has been reported on by The Guardian and Newsnight. It was started by Matt Fowler, who lost his father Ian to COVID last April, after falling ill in March during a period when critics say the government's hesitancy in ordering the first lockdown may have caused thousands of deaths. In memory of this, Fowler painted the first of the 15,000 hearts last Monday, each commemorating another person who has died in Britain, the country with the highest death toll in Europe. There has been a huge public response, with scores of volunteers and bereaved relatives showing up to the memorial wall with red pens to remember each life lost. Organisers expect to reach their target of 150,000 hearts, the number of people with COVID-19 on their death certificate, By the middle of this week, initially started with without the permission of the Lambeth Council, the success of this piece means that there is already talk of making this memorial permanent. So, Finn, this is clearly a very powerful piece of public artwork created by volunteers and relatives to commemorate the sadly shockingly high number of people who have lost their lives so far. So powerful though it may be. Do you think this piece is enough to illustrate the impact of the pandemic on people's lives?
0: Uh, No, it's nowhere near. Like a proper memorial for the people who've died would be a proper investment, meaning that people can self-isolate without losing their income. Uh, The fact that it's popular tells me um, that there is nothing else. There's sort of there's such a a lack of uh, proper support systems in place for British citizens, um, which explains why we've had, had this enormously high Death toll far higher than comparable countries around the world. You know, I wish we didn't have to make artworks to remember the hundreds of thousands of of dead Brits, because I wish we had dealt with the pandemic better when it first got here, and that our our memorial was more to a small number of people who had tragically died rather than a huge number of people who've inevitably died thanks to the the lack of leadership and the terrible decisions that have been made made during uh, this this horrible time
1: and so uh, this was organized by members of the group the covid19 bereaved families for justice uk and it sits directly opposite the houses of parliament um, public artwork generally has and, and can be used to send political messages how effective do you think pieces like this are in initiating conversations and instigating change
0: well, the, the problem with a, a lot of this kind of slightly mawkish public art is that it sentimentalizes tragedy and it turns um, political issues into uh, aesthetic ones. And we see this with the cenotaph. You know, the cenotaph was commissioned at a time of like national trauma after um, just enormous death tolls in World War One. Um, since then, it's become. Uh, a kind of weird tool almost for the glorification of uh, of the military. And so this thing that was once about never again, never forget, this incredible sacrifice that was made by by these people, that tragedy has been sort of turned into this horrendous political football where politicians get teased if they're not kind of wearing the right poppy or or bowing in the appropriate way, rather than a sort of serious and critical uh, engagement with the the, the the much bigger question of the cenotaph is like: how do we stop having these horrible wars? How do we make sure that that never again message is actually driving foreign policy? And I'm not trying to draw a parallel between the way that the the kind of never again movement has been co opted uh, to this this COVID memorial. I'm sure it comes from a a really good place, but I think we we need to be kind of clear-sighted that um, the worst thing that could happen is if this becomes a tool for political leaders who should be held to account for their crimes during this um, horrendous pandemic, use it to kind of obfuscate responsibility and are kind of let off the hook because they lay a wreath at the wall of hearts rather than actually... um, uh, being held held to account for their inaction when they could have saved so many people.
1: Thank you, Finn. I think that that was really powerfully put. Um, what where can our listeners hear more about your work um, and some of the other things that you've been commenting on today?
0: Uh, well, thank you for asking. Um, you should follow Open City, sign up for our newsletters, subscribe to this podcast. I uh, would love to do more shows like this, and I'll, I'll be a kind of occasional guest. I also have a piece in the Architects Journal, uh, in the Architectural Review. Sorry, which is an EMAP title, which is the same publishing house that publishes the Architects Journal. Um, so, if you you want a slightly longer form uh, example of my writing, there's a piece in the in this month's AR out now. But thank you for having me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects' Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city.